All right, so we're studying uh, Matthew's birth narrative prophecies. Matthew's birth narrative prophecies. So we've looked at one. There are a total of five. So we did one last week. Who remembers what that one was? Virgin birth. And so um, I guess a lot of you weren't here for that, but I've, I've done that one before, so you're probably familiar with the idea. But Jesus would be born of a virgin. And what's the key word connected to that prophecy? Well, not the word virgin. That is a, a key word indeed, sure. Uh, Emmanuel, yes. And Emmanuel means what? God with us. And so that one is a little bit unique of the five prophecies. The next five or the next four have a, interestingly enough, a geographical orientation. All of these prophecies are going to specifically reference a location. So the first prophecies, the, the idea of God's presence, the idea of, of the virgin birth, the miraculous nature, but the next are all going to emphasize a specific location, and that location is going to be tied into some biblical theme. So it will make sense of that as we dive in. So let's just look at the first point in the outline. When we think about Matthew's gospel, we're not really studying the whole book, but just these prophecies, but he does have some things that happen in that book very consistently. And so Matthew's gospel has a strong focus on Old Testament prophecies um, that Christ fulfilled. And actually, if you were to take a highlighter and walk through Matthew and note every time the statement, this happened to fulfill what the prophet so-and-so said, you find that it's very regular and very common to see this in Matthew's gospel. You go, you read the Luke narrative about the birth of Jesus. There's allusions to the Old Testament, but you don't get the same emphasis on how Matthew's emphasizing this fulfillment of prophecies from the Old Testament. Why do you think Matthew would do that? What's what's some advantage? What's a purpose maybe behind Matthew emphasizing that? Credibility. Credibility with who? With his audience. All right, so his audience, so you can just, from that, you can tell immediately his audience is Jewish. So he's predominantly writing to people who are familiar with these stories. Often we see in Luke, there's this um, attempt to explain Jewish traditions. Matthew often does not explain Jewish traditions at all, and that's because he assumes they know these traditions. Like if you have a person come to your house and, and be part of a family tradition, you ever find yourself explaining, well, we do this because... Grandma, so and so, you know, you've got some reason. You explain it, but when it's just family, you don't, you don't explain those things. You, you, you can assume that everyone in the room knows that. So Matthew's doing that a lot. There's another reason, though. It's not just to connect with his audience. Um, what else does quoting the Old Testament maybe do for the Book of Matthew? Any idea? Make it more legit to Jews. I, I can work with that. I'm going to reword it and say that it connects the New Testament directly to the theology of the Old Testament, which is what you were saying, I think. Yeah, you know? good job, so good job, Gene. Extra credit on the test for that. So it's interesting that uh, in our Bible, Matthew is the first New Testament book, and that New Testament book is written to connect us to the promises and teachings of the Old Testament. Some people see a lot of similarities between Matthew and, say, the Torah, uh, maybe uh, some of those are a little forced on the text, but there, there are a lot of striking similarities between the two. So Matthew, it's very important as we dive into this, is talking to Jewish people who are familiar with those prophecies, and he's applying them to Jesus. 
So that's going to mean a lot to us as we go. So we fill in the first one. Second one, the first Corinthian prophecy is of the Emmanuel child who will be God in the flesh to take away our sins. Of course, that was last week. We spent a lot of time on that prophecy. Very interesting prophecy. And tonight we're going to do two of them. So the next four prophecies are all tied to, I went out of order, it's geographical location of the narrative. That's going to be very significant to how we work some of this out. So the next four prophecies are all tied to the geographical location of the narrative. And you can see them there. Each location also represents an element or characteristic of the work of Christ. So Bethlehem will connect to being a shepherd, Egypt to being God's son, Ramav to suffering, and Nazareth to shame. And we'll uh, make sense of that as we go. We're going to cover the first two tonight. So Bethlehem and Egypt. So we're going to dive in Matthew chapter 2. Um, we're going to read each of these narratives that the quotation comes from and work through each piece as we go. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born... Uh, nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, my notes are just messed up. Yeah, I'm right. Okay, that just fell wrong. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So, so far, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. And now, who is reigning as king? Herod. So Herod reigns as king. Um for about 30 years, and we know that Jesus was born near the end of that, because we'll find out later he dies about 4 BC. So it's near the end of that period. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and he's still in Bethlehem. And this is a couple years later. So the wise men come from the east, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now we can make a lot of inference based on that question. These guys from the east show up and say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. What does that imply they know? There must be a prophecy that gives them reason to believe a king would be born during this time. Well, they don't know it fully because they would know the answer to the question they're about to ask, but when it says the East, um, there's a lot of historical inquiry there. We don't have time to dive into that tonight, but don't think, you know, China um, when we say the east here, that's not what east is to them. East, in this case, may just be one nation over, which could be the, the Edomites. It could be more Persian, but we're not sure exactly. And basically every manger scene you've ever seen takes an oriental take on, on these men. But we don't know that for sure. But they show up and ask, where's, where's the guy who's been born king of the Jews? We've seen the star rise, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this... He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, to say all Jerusalem with him, what's that imply about the wise men showing up? Well, they showed up in Jerusalem, so they came to the capital. What's it say, though, about their arrival? They stood, it, stood out. They stood out. It's a, a big deal. Some guys have showed up. What's going on? It's public. There's an uh, inquiry. There's intrigue into what's going on here. So they show up. All Jerusalem is troubled with them, and assembling their chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, the word Christ, let's unpack that real quick. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? What, is, what is the word Christ? It, yeah, literally, so the word Christ 
is literally the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Anybody know what Messiah means? And that's the implication of Savior. Literally, it just means anointed one. In this case, the one God has anointed planned to use for some purpose. Jesus is not technically speaking the only Messiah referenced in the Old Testament. Even King Cyrus is considered a Messiah in a very loose sense. God anointed him to do a very specific purpose. But when we say the Messiah, capital M, capital C, or technically capital X, which is the Christ in Greek, starts with that letter. By the way, quick side note, just just so you know, Xmas, not evil. Okay, not evil. Because Christ is spelled X, must, Christ must. So just throwing that out there. You know, I know everybody gets their little little frustration when you see that. Take Christ out of Christmas. No, maybe somebody means it that way, but we, we invented that. Because uh, even in seminary, I was taught, you know, if you wanted to write quickly and take good notes, for Christ, you would write X. For Christian, you would write X in. And for Christianity, X and Y. And that was your shorthand for note-taking in seminary. So, but it has nothing to do with tonight's material. Just uh, throwing that out there as we go. So here's the answer to the question, verse 5. So where is this Christ, this anointed one, this coming king, where is he going to be born? They told him... So who tells him? This is very significant. Now the wise men are asking the scribes. Who are the scribes in this setting? Could be Pharisees. Very much so. Could be Pharisees. Point being there, what type of people in Judaism? They're your scholars, your Bible nerds. These are the people who study the text. So they already know the answer to this question. That should tell us something. So they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And let's finish the paragraph, and then we're going to go back and look at that in its context. So then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared? Of course, we know the narrative. Why does Herod want to know how long the star has been there? He wants to know how old the child is. And this is also another point where your nativity scenes are wrong. Um, because how, how long does it turn out to be? About, about at least two years earlier, they had seen the star. So is Jesus still in the manger? <laughs> in fact, he was technically never in a stable, but topic for another day. He's, he's, he's in a house somewhere, and this has been a couple years later. So he sent to them and um, sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now they're wise men, so <laughs> they know better. Uh, Herod has no intentions of going to worship Jesus. What's his intentions with Jesus? They're gonna, he's going to kill him. That'll be part of the next week's prophecy. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now think about that. What's what's the star doing in the sky then? Navigating. It moved. 
Isn't that weird? You see what I'm saying? And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them um, it, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So it's it's moving and it stops. What city were they in when this started? They're in Jerusalem. Here on a map. So let's say see Galilee, something like that. And then anybody know where Bethlehem is? It's slightly south. So what's this object in the sky have to do? Go south. Any astrological phenomena you know of that moves that direction in the sky? The point is nothing. Nothing moves that direction. Um, in fact, everything in the sky moves what direction? East to west. Why? Yeah. Okay. Y'all are all moving in the same direction from my vantage point. My point being, this star is supernatural. There's no, you know, we can go back and look at, you know, comments and everything. There's really no, it, it wouldn't, it doesn't matter what you go back and find. It doesn't make sense with what's here. Whatever's going on here is miraculous and it's moving. It's moving and then it stops moving when it gets over Jerusalem. So when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed from their um, to their own country by another way. Quick, another side note, I just, you know, Christmas is filled with little things that aren't quite right. There's not three wise men, there's three gifts. That's the reason we say there's three wise men. Because there was three gifts. But there, it doesn't actually say there's three wise men. Just three gifts. All right, let's look at the quotation. So they have been told in verse 5, uh, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. How do they know? They quote the Old Testament. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So what's the... If you were just looking at the New Testament context of that quotation, what's it sound like the prophecy say? There's going to be a king who will do what? He'll shepherd the people of Israel. And where will he come from? Bethlehem. So, unlike our virgin birth prophecy last week, uh, this is the most straightforward prophecy in all of the biblical narratives. No questions. That's your next point. The Bethlehem prophecy is the most straightforward prophecy in the birth narrative. So in its original context, guess what it means? The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. It's not complicated, but let's just see how it works. Go to Micah. Micah chapter 5. And that's in the Minor Prophets. So it's actually not that far back. Maybe 20 pages from where you are in Matthew. Micah chapter 5. It's actually almost the exact same setting as the virgin birth prophecy. So what was going on in the virgin birth prophecy historically? Do you remember? All right, so basically that is correct. So we got Israel down here, split in half. Israel's on the top, Judah's on the south. We had a nation up here, Assyria who was going to come destroy them. And then later, of course, Babylon would do that. And then eventually, who would let them go home? Persians. So Persia would come conquer. So where we are historically when Micah is written is the same place we were in Isaiah. 
Both kingdoms still exist, but the northern kingdom is about to be destroyed. And very shortly, Assyria will come down, completely destroy the northern kingdom, and then almost destroy the southern kingdom. So that was the flood of the river coming into the people and washing away the northern kingdom and coming up to the beard, if you remember, in the southern kingdom. And God was going to pour out his wrath. Micah has the same prophecy. All of that is also going to happen. He's been saying that for several chapters in Micah. And we're just going to pick up in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. So the prophecy is not super specific in exactly when, how long, and those sorts of things, but it's very specific about one thing. And what is that one thing? It was Bethlehem. It was a very significant thing. Bethlehem. Now, what's significant about Bethlehem in the Old Testament? Isn't that where David was? Oh, very good. It's David. It's everything about David. So what we have one biblical book where the entire book is set in Bethlehem. Ruth. This is the story of Ruth happens there. You know the story of Ruth? And the story of Ruth is very interesting because you have Moabite coming and marrying an Israelite, a Judite, we should be more specific, and eventually he great-grandfather's King David. This is very significant, and this is the main key of the passage. So out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, this place in Judah, a ruler would come forth whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What do you think that emphasizes? All right, so we could say this, this one whose coming's always been. They didn't quite have a Trinitarian pre-existent, you know, pre-incarnate, pre-incarnate Christ in mind knowing the writing this. But that's certainly true of the text. So what's another way we can interpret coming from ancient days? Well, the, the one coming will be kin to David. That's not a bad connection. I'm going further back. The ancient days, we're talking kind of foundations of the earth era. How could this coming have anything to do with something before the foundations of the earth if we don't mean the pre-existent Christ? No. Covenant's not a bad idea. I'll, okay, what I'm getting at, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm diving, we're diving too deep. Um, I'm just saying that it's been planned from days of old. So the coming of this Messiah has been in God's plan from the ancient days. This isn't a new idea. In fact, we could go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see the first reference of this child coming. You know what I'm talking about? Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They sin. They're cursed. And in the curse, God makes a promise. There's grace even in the curse. And what's the promise in that curse that he's going to do eventually? Exactly. So one day... A offspring of the woman, interestingly, not of the man, which is significant in that we just did the virgin birth prophecy, but an offspring of the woman 
would give birth to a child who would crush the head of the serpent. So we're connecting dots here. This is, this is that biblical child. But there's a more direct reference, and so let's just fill in some blanks. So let's see, if we do the first one straightforward, Micah prophesied near the end of the divided kingdom period, just before Israel was destroyed. But the main idea here is Micah's prophecy connects the salvation of the nation to the shepherd king of Israel, David. Why is David called the shepherd king? Do you know? That's how he started. He's a shepherd. And that is very significant theologically. It had been prophesied even in Genesis that the scepter and um, shepherd's staff would come from the tribe of Judah. Do you have a question, Judah? What was the third one? Let's see. That one was shepherd king. Shepherd king of Israel, David. So let's think about why is it significant at all that the coming Messiah would be connected to David, born in David's city. Well, Bethlehem is our connected tissue, so to speak. It connects us to David. The genealogy of the lineage. All right, so what's the significance of the genealogy of Jesus being connected? Well, that he's to David? from the Davidic line. Right. So, so okay, so I mean, is it just is it just interesting that he's related to David, or is it theological well, it's part significance? Well, part of a promise that God made. What promise? All right, okay, the Davidic covenant. Go to Second Samuel. I think it's 713. Yeah, it starts in 12. Let's, let's start in 12. 2 Samuel 7, we'll start in verse 12. What's happened is David, after becoming king, decides he was going to build God a house. God's glad that David wants to build him a house, but he says no. Instead, God's going to build him a house. That's what he says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you. On who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So who's the king who's going to come who's going to build the house of the Lord? Immediately it's Solomon. But ultimately it is indeed Jesus. Who builds the house of the Lord in the New Testament? Jesus says, I'm going to take this temple, destroy it, and rebuild it in three days. What's he talking about? His, body. his own body. And who is the body of Christ? It's us. So yes, this is literally fulfilled by Christ. But the promise in David's time was obviously more, they're thinking Solomon at the time. Solomon comes, but the Solomon's kingdom lasts forever. No, but whose kingdom does? Jesus. That's the emphasis of the Bethlehem prophecies. We're connecting to the Davidic covenant. So the emphasis is on the link to the Davidic covenant. You know what a covenant is? Basically like a promise, it's a bond. Between God and man, God's idea. God says, I'm going to let the kingdom of David last forever. And the condition is that will happen so long as God is still God. So when, when God is the condition, what do we usually call that kind of condition? We usually just say it's unconditional. Technically nothing is unconditional. But the condition is God. So 
This is God's promise that he will make a son of David king forever. Of course, that's fulfilled in Christ. All right, so that's the emphasis of that passage. So, so far we've connected David or Bethlehem to the shepherding idea of this ruler of Israel, someone who's going to be in charge, someone who will be the head of the covenant, someone who will be the king. And that's what the Messiah is going to be. Now let's go back to Matthew. Let's read the next little paragraph. And this is one of the more interesting prophecies uh, as we work out in the narrative. So let's go. Matthew 2, now verse 13. Now when they had departed, so who departed? Let's go back in the context. The wise men have gone home. So when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, why would Joseph believe an angel in a dream? Well, it's kind of hard to deny that kind of presence, I imagine. Well, it's the second time in this narrative. So a few years ago, he, when his wife turned up, well, his betrothed turned out to be pregnant, um, he was going to dismiss her. But uh, an angel came and explained it in a dream, and now he's seeing it again. So you can imagine from Joseph's perspective that he can feel God you know, miraculously taking care of him in this scenario. So let's flee to Egypt. So back to our map, Egypt is down here. Any Old Testament stories happen in Egypt? Moses, all right, pretty big deal. What do we call that in the Old Testament? The Exodus. And what, what's the name of the book about the Exodus? <laughs> Exodus, not a complicated one. So it's very significant in Israelite storytelling and their narratives. This, the the um, Exodus shows up in almost every system of theology. If you're going to talk about something, even the word redemption, we think of redemption as redeeming a slave. And Israelite would have think of leaving Egypt. That's what the word redemption meant. To them. So this is a really big deal, Old Testament-wise. So they take Jesus to Egypt, and it says he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So Herod dies around 4 B.C. I say about, Scott, you go look this up on the Internet. It's like, oh, definitely 4 B.C. The reality is all of these ancient dates, everything is to a pretty large degree speculative but this is one of the more certain dates that we have so as certain as we can be about exact timing of things 2,000 years ago I thought that came from up I was the sound bounced that and I was like what the roof's caving in um the sky is falling um I lost my train of thought too what were we talking about Jesus um the date of Herod okay there we go so uh so 4 BC is when Herod dies. So we know Jesus then, if we just do basic math, we should expect Jesus was born no earlier than, or no later than when? Really 6 or 7 BC. Right? Because if Herod dies in 4, we know he'd already, Jesus was 2 years old when he had to run from Herod. So at bare minimum 6 BC, probably more like 7 BC, maybe even 8. Depends on how you time out some of these things. So you follow what I'm saying? All right, so he waits for Herod to die. Says he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt 
I called my son. So there's a prophecy that says, out of Egypt, I called my son. So what does it sound like that prophecy meant? Called Jesus out of Egypt. But if we think about the Old Testament, um, who was the son of God in the Old Testament? Israel. I think I heard it, I heard it in stereo. It came from two places at the same time. All right, so let's go look at the context. If you have study notes there, you'll see that that comes from Hosea. Also minor prophets, so don't go too far back. Hosea chapter 11. We studied Hosea a few years ago. I don't know if you remember that study. The first part was kind of exciting, and then it was just depressing for six months, and we had to take out of the presence when we were done. Um, because, you know, I just love this book. There's some really good, and if you remember, I won't reference it now because there's so many kids in the room, but, you know, the dominant theme of God's people during that time, you don't have to say it out loud, but just, you just remember, right? Yeah. Okay, you know, that's just the, the visual image is, this is what they are, but there's still this love because the imagery was Hosea um, had to go back and get his wife just like God would continue to love his people even though they were terrible. Um, so... Are you with me now, Jane? Jane just light bulb went on. Why I wasn't with you at that time. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so we're in chapter 11 now, and there's been some good, really good passages leading up to this point. And uh, let's just see what it says. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Let's unpack the word Israel for just a moment. Where did you first see Israel in the Old Testament? Do you remember the first... Reference to this term? Jacob. Very good. I've lost my eraser. Y'all saw me use it a second ago, didn't you? We'll work with it. All right. It's just one of those days, isn't it? I'm losing my mind. Y'all saw me holding an eraser, didn't you? No? Okay. All right. I love the state. It doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. I just Israel. Okay. So it says when I when Israel was a child, I loved him. Is this talking about Jacob? Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, third child generation from um, the beginning of the promise with Abraham. Jacob wrestles with God. After he wrestles with God, his name is changed to Israel. Um, is that who is being referenced in chapter 1, I mean verse 1 of Hosea 11? When Israel was a child, I loved him. No, it's not talking about Jacob. What's the next primary way we use the name Israel in the Old Testament? The nation. The nation, because Israel has 12 sons, to make it simple, and those 12 sons represent the what? The 12 tribes of Israel. And so when we say Israel, the bulk of the time, we mean all 12 tribes. Then later we only mean the top 10. But at this point in Hosea, we're talking about all 12. And he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So what does it mean to call Israel out of Egypt when Israel was a child? Yes, when they were slaves. This is the Exodus. Israel is a child downhill here. And God called them out of Egypt to inherit the promised land. 
So who is the son of God who is loved and called out of Egypt according to Hosea 1? This is the people of Israel. This is the Exodus. So how is it Jesus? Not sure. Okay, no, okay, fair enough. We're not sure, so let's uh, fill in that we do. The first blank, Herod probably died in 4 BC. And then Hosea, um, prophecy connects Jesus to the people of Israel with, and we're going to love this word, <laughs> typology. Typology. Did I just get anybody pumped up? Typology. <laughs> Typology is fun. Yogi's shaking his head. He's like, oh yeah, that's good stuff. Typology is all over the New Testament, so this is very, very useful for us. So let's kind of do some background theology for just a moment. At what point in plan, at what point in God's plan, did he decide to send Jesus to save us from our sins? So, so is it plan B? no sense in which Jesus is playing B. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. Before they have sinned, is Jesus coming and dying on the cross plan A at that point? Yes. Before anything, before Genesis 1-1, plan A is Jesus coming to die on the cross. I, know I grew up with a system of theology that made it sound like the Old Testament was God trying to save everybody. It didn't work. How about Jesus? That worked. And I know a lot of people think of it that way. The Bible never thinks <coughs> sorry. The Bible never thinks of it that way. Instead, everything in the Old Testament is merely setting the stage for what Jesus would come to do. So to make sense of Jesus as a sacrifice, we have a sacrificial system. So does Jesus fulfill the sacrificial system? Yes, completely. He fully fulfills the sacrificial system. We see, well, the idea of God leading his people with a king in the Old Testament. What is that symbolic of? It's foreshadowing, foreshadowing of we're going to have a king who leads us. And who is that king? It's literally Jesus. All of these things. We need a high priest who can connect us to God to inform our relationship, to allow us to have a relationship with God in the Old Testament. Is ultimately going to mean, how do we have a relationship with God? Well, with the true high priest. And the true high priest is who? Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, everything, the Old Testament exists for the purpose of leading us to Christ. Everything that happens in some way or another, in sometimes elaborate ways and sometimes very simple ways, is simply foreshadowing what Jesus would come and do. So the New Testament has no problem at all taking some system of thought or some category or some ideal, some pattern of behavior and seeing that pattern and going, yeah, Jesus did that too. And so the idea that God's people, and for them this is fundamental, this is bedrock, God saved us from Egypt level. If God saved God's people from Egypt, then Jesus coming out of Egypt in some way connects to God's Old Testament reality. So, except the major difference, let's fill in a blank before we do that. Let's see. 
We did typology. Typology is also the first word in the next one. So in typology, themes in the Old Testament are seen as foreshadowing the realities of the New Testament. There's a sense in which the substance of all of these things is actually the New Testament. And the Old Testament is the shadow. You see the form. You see the shadow of something, you might be able to tell what it is. But I know sometimes at night, especially when you're a kid in your bedroom, maybe you still do this as an adult, you see a shadow on the wall, it looks like something completely else, different. You, know, you turn the light on, oh, that's what that is. But sometimes the foreshadowings feel like that. Sometimes they're clearly what they are. But that's what typology is. So as the Israelites were redeemed from Egypt, so Christ, their new covenant head, was redeemed from Egypt. He would symbolically lead the people then out of Egypt. You follow this? It, it's, it's nuanced. It's complicated. This is fair. But this is very common practice in New Testament quotation of the Old Testament. Lots of examples of this sort of speaking. So that's called typology. So we're going to see many of them work out this way. Now what's significant, the last point here, the main emphasis of this prophecy is that Jesus is the Son of God rather than the corporate body of Israel being, that's, I'll not begin, being designated as the Son. Jesus is designated as the Son. So Matthew is doing what with the prophecy? Beyond just connecting them to Israel, he's also connecting Jesus directly to being the Son, singular, of God. Now what's that going to mean theologically? Jesus is the Son of God, not one of the sons of God. And that means exactly what you're probably thinking it means. That Jesus is God. That's that's the point that's being made in this text. So Jesus, the out of Egypt I called my son, even though it may not feel like it in the text immediately, is a claim of the deity of Christ. Is that Jesus himself is the son. Not just the whole nation of Israel. Jesus alone is the son of God. So we've done the Bethlehem prophecy, the Egypt prophecy, Next week we'll do um, Ramah and also Nazareth, which uh, those would be very interesting as we, we think about um, what's happening with Herod and the children. But let's just think about the application for today for these two. I know this can be a little bit more heady in terms of the, the meaning, so uh, let's try to make some sense of it. Um, number one, the prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus highlight the sovereignty of God. He's still working in the world to accomplish his purposes. So how far out did Jesus, did God know Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem? At the beginning. At the beginning. You can think of all the little details that had to happen for Jesus to show up at just the right time, for that city to exist, for the narrative to work, for the cultural scenarios to all take place. Can you imagine how detailed this is? And the reality is we can't. This is so much more complicated. I mean, even just trying to plan... Hey, have you ever tried to plan a surprise party? I'm not good at that. Now, Anna planned one so good one time. And it made me question free will. Um, because I chose the restaurant that we ate at that night. I chose. Of my own supposed free will, I chose the restaurant we were eating at. I get there. And there's 40 people waiting for the surprise party. And she had orchestrated a series of events that she knew 
if I was in pressure and this scenario, this, 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 and this happened, I would say, baby, let's just go out to eat instead of cooking. And she knew there was a 99% probability I would choose X restaurant. I'm sure she had a plan B if I chose some random off the wall. But how about we just do this one? You know, I don't know. But uh, it, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. I'm honest, you know, I get there. Point being, um, that was elaborate. I was very impressed with it. But what God's doing on a much more global scale is unfathomable. If you think about how complicated that is. Yet he brought it all to fruition exactly according to plan. Now, did God quit working like that after Jesus came? No. How's he work today? Same. Exactly the same. I love Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who are called by God, called according to his purpose. We know he's still doing this. This is still how he works today. It should be very comforting for us to see the outworking of these prophecies. Second, the faithful fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies encourages our faith to eagerly await the fulfillment of future prophecies. This is one of the things I love about Advent. Um, the Advent season is not just a looking back to what Christ did, but it's a looking forward to what he will do. Because we're like Israel. Israel was waiting the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah came. We're awaiting the return of the Messiah, and we can trust that the Messiah will return. We're in the exact same scenario, just in a different timeline. We're awaiting the return just like they are. Of course, Acts 1.11, do you know what the promise is in that passage? This is when Jesus, he gives them the, the, the second version of the Great Commission. You'll be my witnesses after you receive power in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then he's standing on the mountain. And what's he physically do in front of them? He ascends up into heaven. And they're staring at the clouds. And an angel shows up in verse 11. And what's the angel say to the disciples staring up into the heavens? Why are you still here? And then what, what do they say? They make a promise. He's going to come back just like he left. It's the final word when he leaves. I'm coming back. In fact, we literally believe he'll return to the exact same spot, which is the Mount of Olives next to Jerusalem. And so that's a very fascinating conversation all on its own. And then the last point. So the birth narratives further remind us that the details surrounding the advent of Christ have saving significance. So actually I want you to see this from Galatians 4.4. 4. You probably know it. Galatians 4.4. 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So fullness of time in that context means what? <laughs> At the particular point in the plan. Um, when, when, the, when it came time for that part of the plan to be executed, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why do you think he needed to emphasize he was born of a woman? I don't really know any other way. I mean, do you know anybody, any person who wasn't born of a woman? So why say that? What's the significance? It's connected to the prophecy. The offspring of the woman would come. So we have the offspring. So the virgin birth, very significant theologically to our salvation. 
So he's born of a woman, born under the law. So that means so many things. Born under the law in what sense? What law? Jewish. Jewish law. He's Jewish. So he's part of the covenant. He's part of the system. He's born in the very system that God created to foreshadow the coming of Christ. Why did he do all of this? To redeem those who were born. Sorry, to redeem those under the law so that he might, we might receive adoption as sons. What I'm emphasizing here is the New Testament emphasizes this as well. All of these little pieces of the birth of Jesus are part of the significance of salvation. Like, and we like to boil salvation down real simple. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Call the name of the Lord and you will be saved. But theologically, there's a lot going on here. We're not just saved because some smart guy preached the smart gospel 2,000 years ago. Is it significant that we believe Jesus is God? It's everything. Is it significant that we, we believe he died on a cross? It's everything. Is it significant that we believe he met the righteous requirement of the law? It's everything. Is it significant that we believe he rose from the dead? All of these details come together. Is it significant that he's the descendant of David? Yes. Is it significant that he is the covenant head of the people of Israel and symbolically does what they do? Yes, all of these details matter and are part of our salvation. I say all these just to encourage you to look at it, to study it, to see it, and to treasure the nuance that God has brought to our salvation. All the little pieces work together to bring us redemption, and they give us greater encouragement as we see just how particular God is in his saving so the birth narratives further remind us that the details surrounding the advent of Christ have saving significance. Okay, well, any uh, any questions on any of that? What the next two next week? Then we'll have a break, and then we'll dive in and study a book. So, all right. Well, uh, let's close in prayer. God, we thank you tonight. Pray you bless our study of your word. Let it be fruitful for our growth, edification. I pray this Christmas season that we wouldn't just see the, the pomp and circumstance of holiday in our culture, but that we'd be reminded of the glory of Christ, his advent, his coming, his return, yet future. God, I pray that you would bless us and help us to see the glory of Christ this season as we celebrate. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.